Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you're joining us from around the world. Welcome back to Creation Conversations. And yes, I'm still on the road, uh, although in a completely different place this time. And we have the full team with us for our Easter special broadcast, where we're looking into some of the connections, as well as some of the evidence between creation and Easter time and Jesus and the cross and resurrection and everything else in between. So um, we're very much looking forward to today. It's great to see some people already in the chat and already watching so hello and welcome welcome to you all well we have the the full team with us here again this evening again all around the world so it really is an an international show so it's great to see everybody here um john how are you doing over in uh, in australia well after a night of vicious storms and thunder and lightning and rain uh we are still dry and we are still standing upright and the dog's very happy the storms are finished. Uh, so that's been the last night. And, uh, of course, it's Easter Saturday over here because you're still in Good Friday. Good Friday indeed. So our whole theme tonight will be dealing with Easter, uh, its conventions, where did even the word Easter come from, things like that. And uh, we've been very busy. We were on Standing for Truth yesterday, roughly about the same time. So you can go and see some of the progression of, of uh, the history of the world yesterday and today we are doing the history of uh, Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection but what's interesting in Brisbane here there'll be people going down to the supermarkets today buying hot cross buns well they could buy them Thursday because most of our supermarkets and, and bakeries are shut on Good Friday it's a designated holiday or holy day which is where that word comes from so it's typically been the domain of churches. But in reality, Channel 9 released an article yesterday, which I'll read to you. Brisbane Bakery removes most recognisable feature of hot cross buns. You see, they took the cross off it, right? And they're selling it, and their aim is to create a non-denominational Easter treat. That's here in Queensland. Hmm. Now, it would seem that the cross is offensive to people who are buying from bakeries today. Joe, I believe you have an interesting insight into the history of hot cross buns and, and what happens if you remove the cross from them. What, what did you say to us earlier? Well, if you remove the cross, they just become a tea cake. Is that what you... <laughs> you mean you had tea cakes and they added a cross? Yeah, exactly. Yes. It's just a, a tea cake with a cross. But there's yeah. the old English tea cakes, of course. Yeah, so what does the scripture say? There is nothing new under the sun. So uh, this bakery needs the blessing of finding what the cross is actually all about. And, of course, the sad thing is today, you we used to, when I was a kid, you just used to buy these at Easter time because as I grew up in Australia, uh, I didn't go to church, but you knew one thing. Easter Friday was a good Friday, even though it didn't make logically any sense that killing somebody would make it a good day. Um, we just put up with that because you had Easter buns, the hot cross buns, and you were looking forward to a couple of days later when Christ rose from the dead. Yes, that's what we learned at school even. On the Sunday, we had Easter eggs. 
Don't ask me what the symbolism was. It made no sense to me whatsoever, but I didn't care. I ate them uh, with, with great uh, glee because they were chocolate or sweet lollies or whatever. And today we'll be giving you the whole picture from God's perspective behind the scenes through God's word and all sorts of other interesting things. So that's what's dominated my last couple of days. It's been pretty good. Craig, you've been up here for a couple of weeks. Tell them what you've been doing. Well, it sounds like it's been good to avoid those storms. And I avoided the uh, the real congestion in our airports as well getting down here. But uh, I enjoyed 10 days up in Queensland with John at the head office there. Did a bit of administration work and... Um, went around to NatureWorks, which is a model maker of many things. That was uh, really quite in, entrancing. Um, it's a very magical sort of place, isn't it, John? Um, certainly is. Yeah, so some fantastic models of dinosaurs and so on. So we're hoping to maybe get a few for our museum down here in Tassie. Um, yeah, had a look uh, at uh, the museum that John's got uh, setting, starting to set up there in Brisbane, which was really exciting. And uh, prospects, I'm not sure if John's going to share a bit more about that, but prospects of a another museum there was incredibly exciting to to see. Uh, well, we did a interview on the radio. Yeah, had a good time. Caught up in some office work there for, for creation research. And thank you, Craig, for doing that because, as I've said so often, and uh, for you Christians out there, pray for us. We are in desperate need. COVID demolished uh, quite a few of our staff. Uh, they didn't die or anything, but they needed to shift. Because of, say, be uh, careful how you phrase that, John. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but in reality, we desperately need an office girl, someone willing to do all the things um, that keep this office running. Craig was office girl, Craig, for about a week and a half, and we are truly grateful but we do need somebody to help us catch up. So, uh, yeah, so, Joe, back to you. Who, who's next? Oh, no, who, who wants to be next? I mean, <laughs> Diane and Glenn, how are you doing, Diane? Oh, we're doing well, thanks. Uh, or I'm doing well. I can't speak for Glenn. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, yes, it's... Uh, the, the seasons are changing. It's getting cool here in Canberra. We're, well, not in Queensland where it's uh, summer all year round. Um, so, uh, but yes, we, I, I, we did searching for truth or standing for truth rather early, early in the morning. And then, then I had to rush off to a church service. So I sort of had to, went from one to the other. Uh, <laughs> I, but, I had the opposite. It went from very, very late to then needing to do some more work at the last minute. So um, yes. all over the place. But no, it's good, it's good to have you here. Um, Glenn, how are you doing in the States? Uh, doing much better than last week when I was good. <laughs> online last week. I was watching my phone for the tornadoes that were passing by mm. our daughters. And then that yes. night it passed mm. by us. We lost electricity for a full day. But uh, this week everything's nice, calm. We're getting a little light rain. It's beautiful outside and we're doing great. So had a great week. Great stuff. Good stuff. Good stuff. Sam, how are you doing? I know you've got a, got a good update for us later. Yeah. Working on, but uh, how are you doing in yourself? Yeah, I'm doing well. Um, so I've been working on something this week, uh, which will be premiering uh, later on in the program. Uh, but just to give you a little bit of a tease, here is the thumbnail that I've made. Uh, it's just simply oh. called The Gospel, which is very relevant to today's presentation. Um, but yeah, make sure you don't go anywhere because you genuinely do yes. not want to miss that. Uh -huh. Good stuff. Great stuff. Fabulous. 
All right. Well, um, let's go around and do our, our ministry reports and let everybody know what's been what's been going on. Um, I think probably I may have been the, the busiest in the last little while in terms of ministry because um, I'm still on a ministry trip. We come back from holiday right and go straight into into work. And I've kind of um, ended up dumping uh, most of the museum work onto both my wife and, and Susie, one of our workers, and uh, a bunch of other volunteers who've try been trying to work to get the museum set up. But they've been doing an absolutely fabulous job um, because we've got some big Easter programs that are coming up, including a, a, an Easter egg trail. Um, and if you want to know the connection, because we're going to talk a little bit later about things like Easter eggs and paganism and you know connection word origins and stuff like that but we thought well we really need to use easter um regardless of its uh, its background we need to use it as a means for spreading the gospel because it's a time when a lot of people will come to church when they don't normally so what kind of easter egg trail are we doing it's going to be one with dinosaur eggs and uh, yeah we make the the point many many times that everybody who comes into our museum is going to get the gospel and they learn that all things are made by jesus christ and that includes dinosaurs and uh, it's controversial so don't be surprised that it was our video jesus made the dinosaurs that went the most viral out of all of creation researchers content it was like 150,000 views uh, on facebook back in 2020 when we started because that's what we're really teaching it's jesus who made the dinosaurs jesus as the creator of all so people come in and do a trial they learn the gospel and they get a goodie bag which has the gospel as well so uh, do pray <coughs> For our workers as they prepare for that they're opening on saturday that's that's tomorrow um i'm leading a field trip on <laughs> much further south tomorrow but uh, do do pray for them as they uh, as they work on that and if you're in the uk and want to come and get involved with the museum ministry both in terms of volunteering and helping out then do get in touch with us at creation research at info uh, creation research uk dot com info at creation research uk dot com um because we could really do with your help while i especially while i'm traveling and out and doing ministry and stuff which is where i am at the moment so we've had a whole series of homeschool days and some youth groups and we've got the big field trip tomorrow so i'll be bringing you some updates about that um may even go live who knows it depends on what kind of signal we get down on the beach but uh, it's been a it's been a blessed time as well as a fairly uh, uh, a fairly tiring time at the same at the same time so um yeah Continue to pray and support us. Uh, John, over to you. Okay. Um, I'll sort of launch from where Craig and I have been last Sunday. We were down at one of our supporting churches on the Gold Coast. That's the high-profile tourist area here on the east coast of Queensland, Australia, where you've got sun, surf, and semi-naked ladies usually, sadly. But in reality, it's a beautiful area. But there's a great church there that supports us. Yes, they have their ups and downs because all churches are full of sinners from the preacher like me down. But we're not preaching ourselves. We're preaching about Jesus Christ, about Easter, about the death, resurrection, and about Jesus as the creator. That's how we're going to tie it all together tonight. In fact, I'm going to read you a Bible verse. I looked it up deliberately because to set the scene today, we recently had a dear supporting pastor who is most distressed that in my last evidence news, uh, I used a, um, a, a word, and that was Easter, all about the death of Christ. So before I hand over to Diane to do what she's been doing with the evidence news, uh, let me read to you a Bible passage from King James. 
Yes, you're right. I love King James. I, I didn't have any trouble with it when I was young because we studied Shakespeare all the time at school and the old English just flowed naturally. Here we are, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> out of Acts chapter 12. Because this is uh, the, the uh, Jewish people, because he saw it, it pleased the Jews, this, uh, the, the leader of the Jews there, he proceeded further to take Peter. Also, then they were um, days of unleavened bread. So it tells you what the time is, roundabout Passover, etc. And when he had apprehended him, he took him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Now, after Easter, Herod did not use the word Easter. Uh, after Easter, well, why did they put that in there? Because by the time the King James was written, Easter was a common concept for, well, you look up the Greek and it's Paschal or Passover. But this word here is not a, a Hebrew word either. It's borrowed from the Chaldean. And you find an interesting mix of words here. And so how do we deal with people who say there's too much paganism in Easter in the background? Well, that's what I've been researching. And we'll be putting that together. Joseph will be handling all sorts of topics. I'll be handling the whole big picture because in Australia, it's Easter Saturday. In England and the USA, it's Good Friday. So how do you handle this? Well, one reason for our evidence news is, is to always put a biblical uh, content in it, including the one that we just wrote. So, Diane, tell them how they can get onto that and tell them what you've sent out recently in our evidence news. <coughs> yes, all our evidence news items are archived on a, on a uh, website called The Fact File. Uh, you can look that up. Just look up Creation Fact File or it, there is a link from our main website. We archive the items as individual items so you don't need to know what date uh, the newsletter they were sent out in. You can just do a keyword search and, and look for topics. Um, so uh, we have uh, a couple of, of new ones that we've just added this week. Um, if we might uh, like to go to the slides, um, I'll just briefly uh, talk about those. Um, first one was about the so-called oldest ichthyosaur. Some scientists were quite proud of the fact that they found the oldest ichthyosaur. And this was the uh, heading of their article. Um, earliest Triassic ichthyosaur fossils push back oceanic reptile origins. In other words, people are trying to find the origin of ichthyosaurs because ichthyosaurs, name, that name literally means fish lizards. Now, these are reptiles, but they are a swimming creature with paddles and uh, a dolphin-like shape uh, that lived in the sea. And what they found, these uh, scientists who think they've found the oldest one, they didn't find an entire skeleton uh, like this particular museum um, skeleton. What they found was just the tail, but they can compare the tail bones with, um, with known whole skeletons. So um, quite reasonable uh, assumption there or quite reasonable deduction there. And these days, of course, you, we can not only look at fossils from the outside, we can scan their internal structure and learn quite a lot more about them. And what they found were 11 articulated, that is 
um, put together or held together in the um, way that they would be in life, articulated tailbones. And by scanning these, looking at their internal structure and studying them closely, they came to the conclusion that this was, quote, unquote, a fully pelagic ichthyopterygene. In other words, they, they cannot identify its particular species, but it is an ichthyosaurus. Now, what that means is that it is a fully formed deep sea dwelling marine reptile. So these bones came from a uh, fully formed marine reptile. And uh, that is interesting because of the evolutionary date that has been given uh, to these fossils. Um, <clears throat> and they claim these were the geologically oldest fossils evincing this ad adaptive transition. In other words, uh, going from a land reptile to a marine reptile and they were recovered from uh, Triassic rocks that were dated at 248.2 million years old. Um, so that is less than uh, a big transition that supposedly happened in the evolutionary timetable between the Permian era and the uh, Triassic era. There is supposedly a mass extinction. In other words, a whole lot of creatures got wiped out. That left an empty space or an empty ecological zone that could be then filled with new creatures. So the standard evolutionary theory is that after this mass extinction, land uh, reptiles evolved into uh, swimming reptiles and filled that ecological niche, whereas before there were um, more... Uh, creatures like more like amphibians in terms of the vertebrates that lived in the sea. And uh, 2.5 million years old, apparently is not enough time in the evolutionist minds for land reptiles to evolve into fully marine reptiles. And uh, if you think about it, there's an enormous number of changes that to have to happen for a walking creature that lived on land with legs and reproduced on land as well by laying eggs to something that uh, sw swam in the sea with um, with paddles and, and a fish-like tail or a dolphin-like tail and uh, and reproduced by live birth. Uh, huge, huge numbers of changes and apparently that's not enough time for that to, to happen. So they decided, well, these things must have evolved before that mass extinction and they are really survivors rather than things that uh, are newly evolved. So if uh, they want to find the um, evidence for that transition, they're going to have to look earlier according to uh, their beliefs. And so this was... Uh, a statement in a, a press release from the university. It now seems that at least some groups predated this landmark interval. The fossils of the most ancient ancestors are still awaiting discovery in even older rocks on Spitsbergen. That's where they were found. It's, a, it's an island uh, up near Finland and elsewhere in the world. So they live in hope but we can stand our ground and say, really, this is actually a fool's errand. And uh, there are two reasons for that, because we know the origin of uh, marine reptiles and marine any sorts of creatures from the uh, 
record left by the one who was there. And we are told two things. One, that all living things were made according to their kind. So it doesn't matter if, the, uh, if they do find ichthyosaurs in older rocks, all they will have proved is that they have reproduced after their kind from whenever those fossils were buried, no matter how old they like to make them. Uh, but they won't find the evidence of land animals turning into marine animals uh, for the very reason that uh, we are told the order of things in, uh, in creation. Uh, now, this is a mural uh, made by Steve Cardno, and we have it at Jurassic Ark. Now, you do have to look at it from right to left. It's, uh, it, it's done like that because of where it's located in the, um, uh, in the park at, at our Jurassic Ark site. So if you go from the right-hand side to the left-hand side, okay, we start off with uh, things being dark and void, etc. And this is the first five days of creation. And, of course, the marine things, the uh, things that live in the sea and the things that fly were made before the land animals. So this mural only goes up to the fifth day of creation and the ichthyosaurs were made as part of the great sea creatures they were pretty big uh, i think three meters or uh, about that size um, so they were part of the great sea creatures and so they existed before the land animals that the evolutionists believe the ichthyosaurs uh, evolved from so going and looking for land animals turning into land reptiles, turning into ichthyosaurs, uh, genuinely is a fool's errand because the only reason you would believe that is because you have rejected Genesis, you've rejected God's word and eventually uh, rejected God. And we are told that, uh, in fact, it's the fool who says in their heart there is, is no God. If you want some more details about that um, and the uh, actual findings, there's uh, uh, it's on our fact file, uh, so do go and have a look at it. Um, the other story we had in the, in the newsletter uh, was one of our quirky design ones. We like, we like these because uh, we like to see the evidence of... Um, all the fun, interesting things that God made. And these are often quite memorable, so they're good things to, to share with other people. And this was about hairy cacti and bats. Uh, what's the connection? Well, this particular cactus uh, is pollinated by bats, by this little bat, which is um, uh, called Jeffrey's tailless bat. Um, and uh, bats, of course, fly at night. And uh, quite a number of them get uh, a fly around and navigate by echolocation. But bats also do pollinate flowers or pollinate plants. But how do the bats find the flowers in the dark? And it's not by fragrance. Uh, they do actually find flowers by echolocation. And there are some kinds of flowers that actually reflect the uh, the bats echolocators you could call them sonic blooms if you like but that doesn't apply to these um, this particular cactus uh, some scientists were interested in how this plant was able to be easily found by bats because it was quite effectively pollinated so they actually tested its acoustic properties and they found that the main stem of the uh, the plant uh, reflects the uh, the bat uh, echo uh, echolocating signal 
and so do the flowers uh, reasonably well. But they were intrigued by the fact that this plant has this sort of hairy region around the flowers, which is different to the rest of the cactus stem, which has the usual sorts of spines that cactus have. And so they tested the, um, the different parts of the stem and the flowers, and they found that hairy region does not reflect the, uh, the bat's uh, echolocating signals, and it's particularly good at absorbing the particular frequency, the sound frequency uh, that this bat uses. And so what they decided was that this was a sort of contrast enhancement to help the bat find the flowers on the stem. These are quite big, the, these cacti. And so it's a bit like a, a sort of visual equivalent, if you like, would be something like this. But remember, this is a reflecting sound, not rock, uh, not uh, light. Uh, on the left side there, um, there are actually two shapes there and you could probably just make one out. But if you have a region around the shape that doesn't reflect, uh, in this case with a, with a picture, it's light, but if it doesn't reflect sound as much, you get contrast enhancement and that will help the bat find the flower. Now that's quite a, a clever thing to do that requires a bit of forethought. But as usual, they come up with silly statements like this. Um, and this is what they wrote in their, uh, in their scientific report. Um, in, our results indicate that uh, instead of making flowers more reflective, plants can also evolve structures that attenuate the background echo and thereby enhancing the acoustic uh, contrast with the target. Now, what they've actually said there um, is that this all happened uh, just by evolution. Now, isn't that clever? Uh, when people say that, uh, I think we are entitled to pick that up and challenge them. All right, well, how did that happen? What you have described is what happens. Yes, there is that uh, enhanced, that is that uh, acoustic contrast. But how could it happen? I mean, how would the plant know what the echolocation frequency of the bat was? How could it change its genes for surface growth? So I think we can just use these things just to challenge people to, uh, to think, how could that happen? In fact, it's far more logical that someone who is outside that system, who made both the bats and the flowers, um, put this together as another piece of brilliant design. Uh, and uh, it's uh, quite a, a quirky, memorable thing, so we like to use these as well. If we can just come back to us now. Uh, so do have, do have a look at those on our, on our fact file, and we've been collecting these for about 20 years now, so there's quite a big archive there. You can find all sorts of... Uh, interesting things to um, dazzle your friends with God's wonderful creation. Now, Diane, um, these are all filed on a, 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 an easy access site there? Yes, it's a separate site of its own, but you can link to it through uh, through our main website or you can okay. just go and what's, to what's the, what, what do they look at on the website? Yes. So what what's the actual name of the site that you're talking about? Oh, it's just called the fact file. Good. Yeah, that's, that's all. That's all I need to know. The Sam, link is on screen. Thank you, Sam. Yeah, th thanks, but, Sam. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Glenn. What have you been doing ministry-wise? 
Well, I had a big presentation this week. Um, I had recorded a session with our pastor on the science that behind Easter. And after doing it, he said, oh, you've, you've got to present this to the church. So Wednesday, I, I did that. And, uh, you know, when our pastor preaches, he preaches for an hour. So he expected a full hour of, of speaking. And uh, it was really great because he gave me time to go through the first part, which I'll show uh, tonight, which is the proof that Jesus is the Christ, then go through uh, why we can trust those testimonies, then the science behind largely what Sam is going to present in his video, the just how he suffered on the cross, and, and then proofs of the empty tomb. So it was really good. Got great feedback from that as well. And um, a lot of work and a lot of fun to present. Craig, have you got any field trips coming up? Uh, next week, I probably won't be on the show if I if I go. The weather's not looking great, but yeah, we're going up into the Central Highlands to to a remote area to see if we can find some fossils and so on. Yeah, more Permian rocks, correct? Probably, yeah. <laughs> Lots of sea creatures, but last time you went out, you did find some land plant material, correct? In the Permian, we did, yeah. 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 So. Okay, I think that's a good place for me to launch off here. I'm going to read um, from Hebrews. Uh, the Hebrews book, by the way, is absolutely important, both for the general scene and for what Glenn's going to do, because the, the writer to Hebrews, there's a lot of argument over whether it's Paul or somebody else, is writing at the earliest about 64, 65 AD, uh, and not too much later than that. So... Uh, Rome hasn't sort of conquered Jerusalem or anything like that. Um, you still find reference to the temple in the book of Hebrews, which helps you set the date for it. And it's written to a book of uh, a, a group of Jewish people who become Christians. And now they're being challenged because the Romans have sort of just discovered the Jews are not Christians and the Christians are not really Jews. Now, the significance of that is if you were a Jew and your ancestors had done a deal with the Romans, you didn't need to submit to their religion, but you got your tax-exempt status and everything that went with being able to be a trade. In other words, you had a number and you could buy and sell. That's the sort of background. But if you were discovered to be a non-Jew, then all of a sudden you lost your ability to buy and sell your livelihood. And so the decision that's being made in the book of Hebrews is, listen, we have to convince you that this Jesus actually is the Christ. And the decision you people have made is worthwhile sticking to because look at the alternatives. If you do a deal with Rome, then you are really, you've, you've cancelled your uh, relationship with the only saviour, Jesus Christ. That's the background. Let me read from Hebrews chapter 4 to connect it to where we are today. Uh, chapter 4, verse 3. For we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, have I, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spoke in a certain place of the seventh day on this way, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I love that verse for a rather perverse reason. And that is, ever since I became a Christian, I can memorize the words of a verse. 
even in King James, which is what I read from. No trouble. The words make sense to me, but I've always had trouble with what chapter, what verse. Usually I can remember the book. That's not too hard. But did you notice one thing? Somewhere, the author says, it was said, God made the world in just six days and rested on the seventh. Now, if you went to Israel today and you got there on Saturday uh, at their time, then that is their day of rest because that is their orthodox seventh day. So we're talking about the seventh day here in Australia, our Saturday. So this is very relevant to the day on which Jesus was in the grave because, you see, Jesus was the God who created. And Glenn will deal a bit more with that. And Jesus is the God who was the saviour. Uh, Jesus is the man who died on a cross, but nevertheless, he was yet God. But if he wasn't God, well, Isaiah chapter 43 says, the Lord alone, there is no saviour apart from Jehovah or Yahweh. So if you are a Christian or claiming to be a Christian out there, and Craig had somebody come to his museum just recently saying, oh no, Jesus is not the creator. If you believe Jehovah Yahweh is the creator, but yet he's not Jesus, then you don't have a savior. Because Jehovah Yahweh himself says, I alone am the savior. There is no other savior. And he's the one who in the Old Testament has told the people of Israel that they can enter into his rest. Context wise, if you remember, the Jews had been in slavery. The people of Israel had been in slavery. And then God raises up a savior, Moses, only an earthly savior, and he delivers them out of Egypt into a promised land, a land where they could rest. For the first time, they didn't have to work 10 days out of the week. Yes, you heard me right. The Egyptians had a 10-day week. This seven-day week is exclusively based on the book of Exodus, which God revealed to the people because there's no evidence they knew anything about that, even from their ancestry. No evidence that Abraham had a seven-day week. You see, he came from a pagan background, uh, just like some of us have become Christians, and we learn about it when we read God's word. Okay, I'll read it again, just in case you missed it so far. For we which have believed do enter into rest, he said, as I have sworn in my wrath. He's back now in the book of Exodus. If they shall enter into my rest, this is his promise. If they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. You see the connection? All of a sudden, he's connecting the seventh day here, the rest that he's promising the people of Israel with the foundation of the world back in Genesis. So sorry for those of you churches who think, let's just talk about Jesus rising from the dead, Jesus resting in the grave on the Saturday, and don't connect it up to in the beginning, then all of a sudden, who are you talking about? Why are you isolating the bit in the New Testament that you like with the bits in the Old Testament that your scientific friends find hard to stomach and that you run away from because you believe the world is millions of years old. In fact, Craig's going to give us a look, a new review of a book that's come out by a pastor that's arguing. We can still talk about salvation, but we can still believe in millions of years. We've got to cover the whole gamut. Okay, but the works were finished. What work? The subject here is the eternal rest. The rest of the chapter is not just about the rest for the people of Israel, not just a rest for Jerusalem and surrounds. It's the rest that's promised to God's people, the, the new Israel, as it's called sometimes. 
the people of God who become Christians outside of Judah. Ah, you see, when we're looking at here, one reason why the guy says it's written somewhere is they didn't have chapters and verses in those days. You do know that, don't you? And they didn't have King James either. What you find is the chapters and verses came later on. Uh, so you had scrolls still. Scrolls weren't replaced by Biblia or Bible until about the third and fourth centuries by the time the, 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 the papyrus sort of paper uh, actually took over from the scrolled versions. And I, I, I've often wondered how on earth did Jesus go to the front and unwrap a scroll and find a reference in the Isaiah scroll? I, I wouldn't have a clue. I find it hard enough to remember the Bible chapter and verse in, in a book where it's so much easier and it was invented and added to the biblical text so you could actually follow it much more easier. But he says here, the works were finished from the foundation of the world. So to set the scene and hand over to Craig, the foundation of the world, in the beginning, God created. But as Joseph has said, we make no apologies. God, the creator, is none other than Jesus Christ. In fact, hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. If you go to Hebrews chapter 1, that's what it's all about. It says God, who at many times and in many different ways has spoken to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, yes, there's a term which gets very, very abused in Scripture. Last days is the time when these people are alive. The last days he has spoken to us through his son, through whom he made the universe. So God the Father has designated the job of creation to and through and for Jesus Christ. So the rest of the book follows that introduction. So when we're looking at the Saviour, if your God is not Jehovah, who is Jesus Christ, if your Jesus Christ is not Jehovah, yes, all the mysteries of the Trinity are wrapped up in that, but it's emphatic. There is no other Saviour apart from Jehovah. There is no other Saviour apart from Jesus Christ. Look at what Peter says, worship our God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. So by that time, the lesson had really got through, particularly to the Apostle Peter. Okay, and he says, for he spoke in a certain place on the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day. So if you have trouble remembering references, uh, you can feel at home. There was no reference to be remembered. It was just probably line 45 on scroll six or something like that. It's interesting to consider the problems. Um, when you go back and you say, on the seventh day he rested, well, that's what Jesus Christ, the creator, did. When he finished his work, he looked at it and he called it very good on the Friday. So the first Friday was a very good Friday. And then on the seventh day, he rested. Go to Israel. What day is Friday? Well, it's the day before the day that God rested. So when you look at the first one, then the first Good Friday, yes, you heard me correctly, the first Good Friday had no thorns, no thistles. We did a whole session on that with Diane yesterday uh, on, on Standing for Truth. So when you have a look, the first Friday was a very good Friday, but no death, no bloodshed, no thorns, no thistles, no sin. When you go to what we call Good Friday, it's got thorns, thistles, death, suffering, and there's a person on a cross who's without sin, but he's dying in the place of the first man. The works were finished from the creation of the world. Have you ever read the uh, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18? Not only is Christ our Saviour, 
that it follows Peter's work in chapter 1 of the first book of Peter when he looks in verse 20 and he talks about Christ's work, Christ's uh, uh, salvation being foreordained from before the foundation of the world. Now, I know some of you will struggle with this, but what it means is an all-knowing God, a foreseeing God, a God who could has been to the end and used the end from the beginning. He actually had already known that his son, Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, as he as God the Father, he would be sending God the Son through the power of God the Spirit, and the crucifixion was a very real part of his preparation in order to, well, make the whole thing work. You see, the first Good Friday was very good without sin. The last Good Friday, yes, Good Friday, the day that Craig is still in, no, not Craig, the day that Joseph is still in, Sam is still in, Glenn is still in. The Good Friday we celebrate because of death. And Jesus died on the cross to deal with the sin the first man brought in. You heard me correctly there. Jesus' death, you can say it was for everybody's sin. In reality, Jesus' death was for the sin of the man who first caused the problem because all of us are his descendants. And as Paul said, we've all sinned after the likeness of Adam. So you have to deal with the first man. Any of you theologians out there who want to skip the first man because it's so unpopular, you can't do it. Otherwise, Jesus' death makes no sense whatsoever. One man, Adam, sinned. One man, Jesus, died. Why did Jesus come to be the one who died and not the Holy Spirit or not the Father? You see, Christ is the creator. He made man in his image. The image of God was defaced by sin. From then on, Adam's image was not the image of God. He was a, a, a sinner. And every one of the descendants has been made in the image of Adam, the sinner, sadly. But then Jesus came, who was the express image and glory of God, as the book of Hebrews said. He came because we were made in his image in the first place. And before I finish here, just let me give you one or two last thoughts. Constantly in the New Testament, it's talking about Jesus actually restoring us daily to the image of Christ himself. Ah, there we go, the whole circle. Well, there's lots more we could say, but that's setting the scene from before the foundation of the world where Christ was foreordained, says Peter in chapter 1 and verse 20. Repeats it again in Revelation chapter 13. Check it out. It's tough to come to grips with, but the minute you know that this God and Saviour actually left nothing to chance. He was never caught out by the need to die. He came to die. He set his face towards Jerusalem, and he was determined to die no matter what because death was the payment for sin. Adam couldn't pay it. You couldn't pay it. I couldn't pay it. He shed his blood because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So all of those things go back to before the foundation of the world and praise God, they go way past chocolate Easter eggs, way past Christmas buns, Easter buns, whatever you want to call them. Even if you take the cross off it, they go into an eternity which no longer has sin and death, thorns and thistles. That's probably a good setting of the scene by me. Now, um, Craig, uh, sorry, Joe, you're going to deal with the name Easter because, as I said, we had a dear old pastor who loves what we do. His church is very supportive but was quite distressed because I used the term Easter and you'll sometimes get Christians defending this. Okay, take it away, Joe, and give us a bit of there before we have our first question, Tom. 
Yeah, just very briefly, and also to um, just mention one or two other resources off the back of what Diane uh, spoke about earlier as well. As with many things, you can kind of go too far one way or the other. So again, there are claims out there that Easter has absolutely nothing to do with Christianity. And then you have claims out there that Easter has absolutely nothing to do with paganism. Um, and it's it's well worth understanding your history as well as being able to or, or know how to sort of trace word roots and word origins back. Because there are claims that the um, word Easter comes from the Germanic, the Anglo-Saxon, and there is some evidence for that. But to try and claim that it has nothing to do with paganism kind of falls down quite quickly because you find that the Germanic East, according to the Blue Dictionary of Word Origins is to do with the sun, particularly the rising of the sun and the dawn. So yes, there certainly seems to be linguistic connections between some of the pagan goddesses of the Middle East, but it's not just the linguistic, because ling linguistic, well, it just because it sounds similar doesn't necessarily mean it actually has any connection. So you've got to be wary of just saying, well, it sounds a bit like this pagan goddess, therefore it must be connected to that. Um, you've got to be wary of that. But at the same time, if you look at the um, the word origins, you can trace a lot of these things back very, very far indeed. But again, you can't go the other way and say that um, you know Easter has got um, nothing to do with Christianity because, well, John read you that section earlier, right? Understand a little bit of your of your history, so you can trace a lot of these back. There certainly seems to be an epicenter of uh, of paganism, uh, which spread out from the Tower of Babel. But the really interesting thing is the clash that the Roman Catholics had with the Celtic Christians at the Synod of Whitby. Um, now, we've had uh, uh, the Bishop's Synod quite recently in the Anglican Church here in the UK, uh, and uh, there's been a big falling out, or there's likely to be a big falling out as a re result of that. And it wasn't too different as to what was happening at the Synod of Whitby, because they were clashing over the concept of Easter specifically what the customs should look like and when Easter should actually happen. And you had effectively the Roman Catholics who were promoting a sort of almost pagan-inspired version versus the Celtic Christians who were promoting a Passover-inspired version. But then, as John mentioned earlier, the word Passover is of Babylonian origins anyway. Um, so there's some really interesting history in all of this, which is well worth actually picking up on. Now, there's two things I just want to very briefly say. Number one, as Christians, we really ought to make the most of Easter, regardless of whether it's pagan or not. Personally, I don't see any issue with Christianity taking hold of a uh, a pagan celebration and uh, and you know taking it for Christianity because it has proven to be very useful in the past. Um, I mean, think about it. Certainly in the UK, Easter is one of the times when people who don't normally go to church will go to church. So let's make the most of that. Easter is the time when, well, even if you've got Easter bunnies and chocolate Easter eggs and so on and so forth, um, there is some connection to people's mind in thinking about crosses and thinking about resurrection and so on and so forth. So make the most of that. In fact, uh, our friend Ray Comfort, who we had on the show um, a few weeks back, put out a, a really important uh, email earlier, basically pointing out that, yes, we should really make the most of Easter, regardless of whether it's, uh, it's, 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 it's got pagan connections or not. It's something which is relatable to most people. So just like the Apostle Paul went out on Mars Hill and started quoting Greek tragedies, 
um, poets, right, use something which can actually give the gospel to people and show them the true meaning, the true history behind it. And it's one that has to do with Jesus Christ. As a, a quick uh, note, which I'm just going to... Um, share here and i'll also put the details up in the uh, in the chat as well uh we've had a lot of questions regarding all of the easter and the origins and stuff like that and it's something that we could go on and on and on about for a very very long time but what i'll do instead is just show you where we've actually collated it all together so on the creation research center's website you can see there easter questions and answers i'll put the link up in the chat in just a moment um but you can see we've actually covered a whole load of stuff from our easter bunnies christian and easter eggs is the name pagan what does it mean by Monday Thursday, which was yesterday for us, and um, as we found out, if you're in the States, you probably haven't even heard of Monday Thursday, so there's a really interesting thing there. Wednesday crucifixion, questions about Easter and how long Jesus was in the grave, and all this kind of stuff, as well as past creation conversations that we've dealt with as well. So go and check out the Creation Research Center, click on articles, and you'll find Easter questions and answers there, all of it collated together in one very, very useful place. And I'll uh, put the link up in the um, description in just a moment. But ultimately, what we need to be remembering is every single opportunity to uh, spread the gospel and to provide people with a discussion over, okay, well, Easter, what is it? Well, okay, yes, maybe there's pagan connections there. Maybe it's something that got taken over by the Roman Catholics. But what is it traditionally in this country? It's a celebration of Jesus' death and resurrection. So use that. Take that and actually give them the gospel, give them the truth, and show them that actually the real important thing is not the Easter bunny, it's not the Easter egg, it's not anything to do with the sort of worldliness that is often added to this. Um, it's about Jesus Christ who came to die and save us from our sins. There's a link up uh, in the description, um, or rather in the in the chat. There's the other link there where you can find stuff from both the question and answer side, from the fact file, as well as from our own articles which we've put up regarding things about the origin of the word Easter and some of the linguistic uh, uh, roots that you can trace it back. John, back to you. Okay. Um, it's probably a good time to give Sam an opportunity to any um, thank yous or any questions so far before we move on to Craig, who's going to deal with, uh, you know, millions of years and, and, and salvation and a new book that's come out by our evangelical pastor trying to put it all together and still say Jesus needed to die. Um, Sam, how are you going? All right. Well, let's have a look and see if we have any uh, thanks to give. And we do. We do have some thanks to give. We've got Iron Matt coming in swinging with four US buckaroos, a pair character exaggeratingly stretching his arm forward to offer a cup of coffee. Thank you so much indeed, Matt. And also we've got Neil coming in with 10 British buckaroos. Thank you so much, Neil. Uh, we've got one question so far. This come, well, comes from Douglas. Uh, not quite related to what we're talking about to, uh, today, but still an interesting question nonetheless. Uh, could the sea creature that swallowed Jonah be a leviathan? Well, before we answer that one, I'll get you to sneak a commercial in because people who've been wondering where they can get this stuff, we've produced this book a couple of years ago. It's a summary of all the Bible teaching we've been doing at Easter time, and it's called Walking with Jesus Through Genesis. It is available in England. It is available in Australia. 
Um, there are some copies in the USA, just much harder to get because of our serious issues we've had with the USA website. But uh, that's that's the one we'd encourage if you want that. You can order it online from Australia. And uh, again, pray for our, our whole web situations around the, the globe. We're investigating how on earth do we improve them. Okay, who wants to take this question here? Could the sea creature that swallowed Jonah be a Leviathan? Well, I suppose it depends on your definition of what Leviathan is. Um, I'm because you've got the the depiction of Leviathan, which is found in Job forty one, but Leviathan itself is a a a technical term which refers to one of the giant whales um, of enormous sizes. Now I've got nothing to do, nothing wrong with it being uh, a giant a giant whale, um, but I think the the depiction that it gives in for Leviathan in in the book of Job refers to certainly something a bit more reptilian because it talks about scales and it talks about fire and it talks about um you know being in the not quite in the um in the depths of the sea um but more in the sort of the shallow so i think that it probably it probably isn't going to be that um i think there is what was it was it the um <clears throat> one of the giant whale sharks of some description that um that spend a yeah, lot of time in the Mediterranean, the vegetarian ones that spend time around, often found in the Mediterraneans, um, and they can be a lot, lot bigger. Because you've got to remember, whatever swallowed him, swallowed him on his way from um, uh, Israel, basically, to, to Tarshish, which is in Spain, if I remember correctly, or around that area. Mm. So effectively, he was swallowed within the Mediterranean, which is not a hugely deep um see and, and so you've got a whatever swallowed him had to fit inside the mediterranean um <laughs> and be able to survive there so i suspect it was one of the giant vegetarian sharks um but uh yeah i guess one thing we need to say is even though it sort of looks like it's got nothing to do with the subject it actually has remember that the word of god the cru crucifixion was foreordained as part of God's overall sovereign plan as much as we struggle with that sort of concept because I don't even plan for tomorrow too well and if I do it usually goes wrong uh, but in reality God is not me and I am not God and therefore everything in the Old Testament and everything in the New Testament points to Jesus Christ that's why he said only this sign will be given to you the sign of Jonah the prophet right three days and three nights and jesus connects it straight to his his uh, crucifixion and his re burial and then his mm. resurrection so as is it doesn't look like it's connected everything in your bible you will see is there for a particular purpose to point to the coming of christ as savior and his death and his resurrection so uh, perhaps if we move on to craig now with your subject on um you know can you actually tie this to millions of years yeah, okay. Um, just following up a little bit really on what John has already presented um, about the uh, the problem of physical death um, uh, in humans. There's a, quite a debate amongst Christ Christians as to whether um, death was part of the original creation. If the world's billions of years old, then death had to be a part of it. And... Um, the Bible, to me and to us, of course, seems to very clearly say that that's not the case. But uh, one of these um, 
uh, Christian uh, pastors has written a book called Destined to Live. Titled To Live, The Theology of Redemption from an Old Age Perspective by Don McClellan. He was actually a pastor of mine for a period um, in Tasmania. I think he's based in Queensland now. He's also been a Bible college lecturer. But the, the question arises as to whether sin is just um, a, a, a it, well, the result of sin is spiritual death rather than physical death as well. So I'll just um, go to my slides if you can, please, Joe or Sam. So we're just looking at this issue is, is sin's curse physical or spiritual, or is in, it indeed both? So this is a quote from Don McClellan's book. Um, when he's talking, he makes a statement that uh, death is unnatural, sure. And he says, well, this is true in one sense. We must face the fact that we live in a decaying universe. We live on a planet on which death ended the lives of innumerable creatures long before Adam rejected the offer of eternal life. So there's just a couple of things we can pull out of this, this quote. First of all, um, his acceptance of the fact that death ended the lives of innumerable creatures. Just consider that over millions, hundreds of millions and, and or billions of years. The, just the range of death in creatures would have been incredible. And it's nothing to do with Adam's sin, according to this type of theology. Um, I, I, I find that quite horrendous, actually, that uh, people would put that claim upon our creator and Saviour Jesus, that he would create a world in that way. Um, and the second thing is that Adam rejected the offer of eternal life. In other words, um, he was already dead and um, he was already going to die physically, but but when he um, decided to eat from the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that he was actually rejecting an offer of eternal life. The very next verse after, uh, not verse, sorry, the very next statement after this passage in Don McClellan's book is this. I am asserting based on what we may observe using the disciplines of science that this is the very good earth God created. So here McClellan has really exposed what he's basing his theology on. It's not on the scriptures at all. It's actually on the disciplines of science. And that's very concerning. Um, really what you're doing is throwing out the whole idea of the Reformation, that it's uh, sola scriptura, scripture alone, and in fact we now can modify our ideas of theology based on the disciplines of science. Now, was there really millions of years of death before Adam sinned? Well, I think this is solved pretty quickly in scripture. Um most famous verse perhaps in the scriptures or one of the most famous openings to any book at least is in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now Jesus also refers to in the beginning and he says, haven't you read? So what's he referring to here when he says, haven't you read? He's, he's speaking to the religious leaders of Israel. He's referring to Genesis and he says, haven't you read? that in the beginning God made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife. 
So clearly, Jesus is talking about people. He's talking about humans. And he's saying that they were there in the beginning. Now, if mankind was created 13.6 billion years after the real beginning, then that statement doesn't make sense. And in fact, Jesus is lying. Mm -hmm. But it's quite clear that if mankind were created on day six of creation, that indeed can be called in the beginning. So this makes sense scripturally. It may not, not make sense to some of these theologians if they're accepting the disciplines of science like they are, then um, yeah, they come to the compromise of the millions of years of death. So McClellan is saying that Adam had a choice. As I said earlier, Adam chose to remain mortal in the way that all things on earth are mortal, but he also chose spiritual death. So in other words, when he chose from the, the fruit, chose to eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, he was choosing spiritual death rather than physical death because he was already going to die physically. What's the Bible say? Well, in Genesis, the Bible says, well, the Lord commanded the man. So this was what uh, God had uh, lined up to be the, the choice that they had. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Was he meaning spiritual death? Was he meaning physical death? Well, what was the result when mankind did actually eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? As John mentioned earlier, cursed is the ground because of you. So the ground was impacted. It will produce thorns and thistles. These things resulted from the sin, but also to the dust you, you will return in Genesis 3.19. In other words, you've come from dust and you're going to return to it now that you have chosen to disobey what I said to do. So it's quite obvious if you take a plain reading of Genesis that physical death is the result. And this is actually backed up in Romans, uh, in chapter 8 of Romans. It says your body is dead because of sin. Your body, your physical body is dead because of sin. And Christ died a physical death. If it was only a spiritual problem, we've got to ask ourselves logically, why did Jesus Christ then have to die a physical death? And it's obvious here in Romans again, chapter 5, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And praise God for that. It's very consistent logic. Your body is dead because of sin, but... If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your, what? Spiritual bodies? No, mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. So life comes back to your mortal bodies through Jesus rising from the dead physically. And this is the great Christian hope. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. And um, this is the great Christian hope. It's a very logical, um, basically legal case that Paul is establishing in Romans. Um, very logical that death came through one sinful man. So life came through one sinless man who conquered death.
the problem of physical of death is physical and spiritual but we can praise god that it's solved so back back to you thanks joe great stuff <clears throat> thank you very much for that uh, craig there you are now diane yeah. joe because you were away when we we uh, doing your camp stuff uh, diane is going to be next in the sequence so that's correct uh, sam yeah that's right yeah now so, diane you are medically biology background correct yes that's right so folks appreciate any comments you make on death comes from both your theoretical and practical knowledge at, at this level and indeed you don't have to live too long for all of you to have practical experience either in your friend's death or in uh, yeah. in the, the sadness of this world so Diane take it away with the subject you're going to deal with and then we'll have our second question time yes well uh, a few years ago uh, someone sent in a question to uh, our uh, question and answer site which is just called ask john mckay um, that's a separate website but you can link to it uh, from our main site just like the fact file you can link to that as well um, but they they brought up a theory which does the rounds every now and again um did jesus actually die on the cross or did he just go into a coma and uh, then uh revive uh, be revived in the tomb and merely appear to rise from the dead now the this is sometimes referred to as the swoon theory. Swoon is an old-fashioned word for faint. Um, now, this has been debunked, debunked many times, but uh, it does do the rounds occasionally, and also some Muslims um, uh, will come up with this theory as well. And so someone sent it into our, uh, our Ask site or our Question and Answer site, and... Uh, and even suggested that people would find it easier to believe and the churches would be more full if, uh, if if that was the truth, that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross but went into a coma and uh, uh, only appeared to rise from the dead. Well, <laughs> we would dispute that, as we've already said, with what Craig's just shared and what uh, John will um, share later on. Uh, but anyway, if um, let, let's look at that uh, and uh, honestly... And, of course, with a lot of our um, sceptics' criticisms, uh, the first thing we have to do is know what Scripture actually says. Uh, it's all very well to take things out of their context and, and uh, come up with ideas, but know what Scripture actually says in its proper context. And don't be afraid to check out the science and the history. And, and remember, God is the God of the real world. Jesus' death and resurrection took place in real history, in real historical context. Uh, so first of all, we need to remember that Jesus himself said that he would be killed. He didn't say that he would just be attacked and persecuted, which he certainly was, um, but he did specifically say he would be killed and warned his disciples. Um, and uh, as, um, so, as the, the others have shared, this is a fulfilment of prophecy. Uh, so to accuse Jesus of... Um, just uh, going into a coma and then merely reviving, uh, you actually make him a false prophet, which has uh, got, got other implications. But let's just stick to the, uh, to the actual events. Um, if you read the four Gospels and put together the description of what happened in the last few uh, 
moments of, of Jesus' life. And just because they don't say exactly the same things in precisely the same order doesn't mean that it's a made-up story. In fact, that is evidence that it is actually um, witnesses who were there. Because if you think about it, the same people can see the same event. But we're all interested in different things will take our... Um, our attention so that when we write down or give a verbal report of what happened it's not going to be precisely the same um, but uh, it, it will all fit together because different things will be more meaningful or more interesting so they'll they'll have more emphasis from, from one person together it's when they're all exactly the same that you think it's made up it, the, that you reveal that it's made up but anyway if you do put um, put all of those things together, it, it couldn't actually be made any clearer that Jesus did actually die on the cross uh, because it says that he uh, committed himself to his heavenly father, he bowed his head, he gave up his spirit, and it says that quite clearly, uh, the old expression gave up the ghost. That's where it comes from. A lot of common English phrases do come out of the Bible. That can be quite a good, uh, good talking point. Um, uh, particularly in, in the English language. Uh, but anyway, he gave up his spirit and he breathed his last. And it also clearly says that in, in all of the Gospels. Um, so we need to just take that seriously, take the plain meaning. And if you have breathed your last breath and your spirit has left your body, you are dead. You are not unconscious. Um, so let's put that into the bigger picture of what actually happened. Jesus was condemned to death and he was sent um, to the, handed over to uh, a squad of Roman soldiers um, who uh, beat him up and took him out to be crucified, uh, along with two other people. Now, you have to remember what the Roman soldiers would have been ordered to do, basically take these three men out, crucify them and don't come back until they're dead. In fact, the Roman soldiers knew their job was not finished until the three people that they crucified were dead. So they would have known what they were doing. They'd done it before, and also being trained soldiers, they had killed people in battle. So they knew the difference between someone who was alive and someone who was dead. And we need to remember that up until recently, people were closer to death, as it were, in terms of... Um, handling dead bodies. We outsource that uh, process these days to uh, funeral directors and undertakers. But back in Roman times and in ancient civilizations, of course, people had to take care of the dead themselves. So they, um, they were very much aware of the, the difference between uh, a live person who was unconscious and a dead person. Uh, and the same with the people who were actually there uh, watching the whole process they left when Jesus breathed his last and died. So they knew that he had gone. Now, when the soldiers were ordered to take down the crucified men, they actually confirmed that Jesus was dead uh, by uh, throwing a spear into his side. Now, if he wasn't already dead, that certainly would have finished him off. But it does confirm that he was already dead. Uh, and we already had the uh, testimony of the Roman centurion who was in charge of the process that he really noticed uh, a change when Jesus died. And later on, when they were told to uh, take down the bodies, this was confirmed. Uh, it says that uh, blood and water 
flowed from the wound. So it wasn't just flowing red blood. When you die, um, your blood clots, right? Blood only stays liquid when it's flowing inside your body. Uh, when you die, it stops flowing. And the cellular part of it, which is mostly red blood cells, which is what makes blood red, um, that separates out from the fluid part. Uh, so if you uh, pierce a body, the clotted blood, um, the coagulated blood and the fluid part would have separated. Um, so, and that's clearly described in the, um, in the Gospels. Now we then have the testimony of, um, or the description of uh, Joseph of the Arimathea and Nicodemus. Remember, they took the body, wrapped it up uh, and uh, took it away. So they would have known that they were dealing with a dead body. As I said, uh, people in those days, they had to deal with their own dead. They had to uh, prepare the body and bury the dead themselves. So they knew what they were dealing with. Um, Jesus' body was wrapped up in grave clothes, which um, would have, uh, which is necessary not just for decency. It's not actually easy to move a dead body. Now, I've never actually had to do this, but I did see in uh, various hospitals that I worked in, the, um, the nurses had to prepare, a, a patient had died, prepare the body to be moved. And in order to be moved, <laughs> you do need to tie it up. Uh, dead bodies are not easy to move. Uh, that's been the undoing of uh, various uh, murderers, but that, that's a, we, we won't go there. Um, and it specifically says Jesus' body was wrapped up in grave clothes and also there was uh, an extra piece of cloth which was wrapped uh, around his head um, and that included being tied up in a way that sort of kept the jaw shut so that the mouth was shut uh, for decency. So any of that would have prevented a live person from, from breathing or even moving. Um, and uh, then Jesus' body was placed in a tomb. So we have to take seriously uh, the, the testimony, as it were, um, of the people who were actually there. They knew what they had seen. They knew what they had, um, they knew what they were doing. Now, if we go back to the soldiers, remember there were more soldiers involved because soldiers were uh, placed in a guard outside uh, Jesus's tomb. Now. The whole idea that Jesus would have come, would have woken up within the tomb and then have to get out. And remember, his hands and his feet would have been horribly, horribly mutilated and he had a, a hole in his side. Um, and if that had penetrated his chest cavity, he wouldn't have been able to breathe uh, anyway. Um, to get up, move the great big stone, and it was a seriously big stone, which is why the women who went to the tomb um, said, well, how are we going to move this great big stone? It was a, That was a serious problem for them. Uh, it was taken care of by an angel who had no problem looking at uh, doing that. But anyway, if uh, imagine Jesus in his wounded state trying to move this out and then having to deal with a guard of soldiers. And uh, you also have some of the other sillier theories about the... Um, uh, the uh, lack of resurrection. Uh, one of them is that uh, the uh, disciples came and stole the body. And in fact, that was the very reason the soldiers were put there uh, because the uh, religious authorities uh, thought, well, the, the disciples might try that sort of ruse. Um, 
Now, remember, the soldiers um, were there uh, to uh, prevent that from happening. Now, they would have had no trouble dealing with a few... Um, a few fishermen and a few ordinary people. Now, we were told that when an angel from heaven appeared, they were frightened, rigid, and be became literally like dead men. In other words, they fainted. Jesus didn't. Jesus was alive. The soldiers fainted uh, in fear of an angel from heaven, but they would have had no trouble dealing with Jesus' disciples. Um, and, of course, then there is the testimony of the women, and I need to defend women here because there is a silly theory that says, oh, well, the women went to the wrong tomb um, and they led the disciples up the garden path. Um, no, that's not true. It, again, if you read the actual description of what happened by reading through the four Gospels, the women were there at the crucifixion. They saw Jesus die. And they would have known the difference between a live but unconscious body and a dead body. They followed the burial party, as it were. Uh, so Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they went to the tomb and saw where Jesus was buried. So they had actually been there. They weren't just following someone's description. And it's interesting that uh, you hear these um, modern studies about how women think and about men think. And uh, there's the old joke about uh, why women can't read maps and uh, why they can't navigate. Uh, in fact, I love reading maps. Um, but uh, in general, women do tend to navigate by landmarks. So remember, the women were actually there. They didn't lead anybody up the garden path. They knew they, where they were going. So uh, we have the testimony of the, of the witnesses who were there. It fits what we know about um, how things were done, how things happened in that historical context. And, of course, if none of this did happen, if Jesus didn't die on the cross and then rise from the dead, well, then Jesus is a false prophet, the gospel writers made it up, and the gospel is not God's word, right, or... It's true. Uh, and because it's true, we can have uh, new life. And so rather than uh, being destined to live out of millions and millions of years of, uh, of evolution, as uh, Craig has just shared with us about this uh, theory that there were millions of years of evolution uh, and death and disease before people came on the earth, we know very well why Jesus had to die. Uh, it tells us in the book of Romans, right, one man brought sin into the world, therefore one man brought death into the world. Jesus took that penalty and therefore it is essential for our eternal life. We would have no assurance of salvation, no assurance of um, that we are destined to live unless Jesus actually died and then rose from the dead because it was only through his death that he actually dealt with that problem of death coming into the world because of sin. And uh, if we can go back to uh, all of us, um, if uh, anyone else has any questions about uh, the, the events of the crucifixion, burial and resurrection or of the, uh, the more important uh, implications for our own lives. Craig, can I ask you a question before we throw it up to everybody? Now, you reviewed a new book, uh, just recently published, correct? Are you on, Craig? Are you on mute? Craig, I think you're on mute, mate. Yeah, yeah, sorry. 
Uh, yes, yes, it was written this year. Written this year, so it's brand new. Yeah, but you knew, you knew this pastor personally? Uh, yeah, that's correct. Okay, and you have chatted to him about this problem? Oh, not in detail. It, it, it came up once um, between us and uh, it wasn't in a, in a appropriate location to have a, a good discussion, so I just, just let it drop at that time. But um, that was long before I knew he was that passionate enough to write a book about it. Okay, so he's written the book. You didn't get a copy before mm. it was published. And this review that you've done, are we going to be able to see the whole review? Because you and I talked about this as you were up here in the last two weeks and there's an awful lot of things that need to be dealt with that flow quite naturally from rejecting the biblical account of six days, rejecting the biblical picture of where death comes from, where life comes from, rejecting the biblical picture of the life being in the blood and all of that. Is this is your review going to appear anywhere? Yeah, well, I'm hoping uh, once we've finished off a few of the, the finer details of it that we'll put it up on our website perhaps um uh, we've gone into a lot of a lot of detail tackling some of the issues that mcclellan raises he quite openly admits really that he has to reinterpret scripture um based on the sciences i gave one example there but there are others throughout it um he acknowledges for example that paul when he's um speaking about creation groaning in romans 8 20 he acknowledges that Paul is basically saying this is a as a result of sin, but then says, well, it can't be because we know that death was um, already, you know, sort of in play. So um, he then reinterprets it from there. So um, the science or his understanding of science, probably more correctly, has very much influenced the way he interprets the scriptures. And, uh, now, Glenn, you received a copy of this review? Yes, I saw the review that Greg had written. I haven't what seen the book. I thought it was outstanding. In fact, I asked Greg if I could quote from one of his uh, comments in there. It was so excellently done. And he's not charging you anything to quote from him for your sermons? <laughs> <laughs> I, I told him he can have all the payments. The payments just are going to come after death, I think. <laughs> so where this will be published on our website and it'll be available free of charge we'll let people know when uh, when they can get it so sam any I, other I, questions well like, can you. i just say one one sure. thing please john is is i would like to acknowledge that i really like don um, uh, um as a as a person um i think he's a very sincere christian um he's, he's he can preach a great sermon um but I think that he's got this area pretty mixed up. Good. Okay, Sam, any thank yous, any questions? Yeah, sure. Um, just quickly before we move on, it's, it's interesting because what Diane was basically going on about was essentially the crux of me coming to faith in Christ. Um, it was part of my um, my journey to, um, to, to Christ, like looking at the crucifixion, this was the, the, the crucial detail and looking at the science of it and looking at, you know, can, can we trust the Bible? And yet, yes, we can. And as Diane, you know, accidentally put, um, you know, none, none of Christianity, um, makes sense unless Jesus did actually die on the cross. And that, that's the, that's the crux of the, of the argument here. And, and, you know, he did. 
So, uh, <laughs> so anyway, uh, let's move on to some. Uh, we've got a thank you and a question in here. This uh, a thank you coming in from Jim P, a super sticker for five ninety nine Aussie Buckaroos, a pair character exaggeratingly stretching his arm forward to offer a cup of coffee. There we go. We've got two coffees this evening. Um, oh, that's good. It's morning here. We appreciate cups of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and so this question comes in from Neil. Uh, if people accept that God used death before Adam sinned and saw it was good, God could have death in the new earth and new heavens by the same logic. It's nonsense, isn't it? I think that was one of the points that you yeah, made during the debate against Polkinghorne, yeah. was that if you really have a God who creates by using death, you have no guarantee of a good new heavens and new earth, um, especially one that uh, that doesn't include death. Sam, if you'll put up a link mm. to the debate video, because that was filmed, uh, I think we had five or seven cameras. The chairman of the BBC chaired that debate against Polkinghorn, and it really was about this single issue. And there's no mm. doubt about it, Professor Polkinghorn did not win by a large margin. So it's really worth watching. Diane and I prepared the arguments here in Australia and uh, it was a couple of hours of debate and well edited, even though we weren't in charge of editing. So that was really, really well done. It's still available as a um, streaming or as an MP3. Uh, I believe those are the right technical it's actually up on It's actually up on our YouTube. Oh, good, good, good. So, so people can go there and watch that if they want that, that topic in depth. It comes down to how how much um, mm. trust you put in the scriptures, because yeah. the, the scriptures also describe what mm. the new heavens and earth are going to be like, mm. as well as you know the way creation was mm. established. It says there will be no more crying or tears or pain, and and the wolf will yeah, lay yes, down. Yes, and it specifically ground. says there's no death, mm. and the death gets thrown into the lake of fire. So that's what God thinks of death: it belongs in the lake mm. of fire with the devil. Uh, yep. It's about Revelation 19, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Revelation. I, I think it's. Um, I think it's Revelation uh, 20. But uh, yes. 20. Yeah. Uh, well, well. Anyway, it's there. Yes, the the death thing. Death and Hades get thrown into the lake of fire. So that's an indication of what God thinks of death. So we should think <laughs> the same. <laughs> As the writer of Hebrews says. Somewhere it says. <laughs> Somewhere it says. Yeah, yes, that's right. We're in good company. Thanks, John. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, any other questions there, Sam? Uh, none so far. So if you have any further questions, do get them in. But I think we'll move on um, to our next two segments. Glenn's next. So where you go? And then we have a great movie that you've made up, a, a clip on the resurrection and, and the crucifixion. Isn't that the case, Sam? Yes, that's right. Uh, so don't go anywhere, guys. Uh, make sure you do stick around. Uh, we have a, uh, a brand new uh, premiere of a, a short film that I've produced. Uh, it's called simply The Gospel. Um, this is coming up very shortly after Glenn's uh, presentation. So please don't go anywhere. You definitely do not want to miss this. Okay, Glenn. Take it away on the prophecies of Jesus as Christ and Creator and 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 Savior. All right, Sam, are you controlling it? I am. Yes, I'm just getting the powerpoints up now. All Give right. me two seconds, and I'll be with you. 
and my video is not working on of me. I assume you've turned it off. So. No, I think it's a signal a problem on your end. Oh, great. All right. So go to the next slide. And All right. So you know, we got this question a couple of weeks ago about science. So I just wanted to make it clear before we talk, because I was speaking about the science of, of Easter. And it's, it's basically, is Jesus really the Christ? And so what is science? Science is making observations that are repeatable and can be tested, but it's also recording those observations. And as Joseph brought out, we talked about, you have to communicate those, you have to publish those. Either nowadays you can publish it with video or as they did in those days in, in writing, in contrast to historical science, which is making an observation in the present and then drawing interpretations about the past. So keep that in mind as we go through the, the prophecies, because the, the Bible, well, in science, you know, one of the ways that we most often test these observations is through predictions. Go to the next slide. Uh, because the Bible makes a lot of predictions. We call those predictions prophecies. And the Bible even gives us the criteria for evaluating whether or not these predictions are valid. Uh, in Deuteronomy, it says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So we can test whether or not the predictions in the Bible, the prophecies, are true by whether or not they came about. Well, let's go to the next slide. And in my Bible, as I read there will be in the Old Testament a, a little triangle off to the side of the verse that is a prophecy about Jesus. Well, all you have to do is pick up in Isaiah 53. There are numerous of these prophecies. I just listed some of these in just from this one chapter. He said he'll have no stately form or majesty. He'll be despised and forsaken of men. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. By his scourging, we were healed. The iniquity of us all fell on him. It just goes on and on and on. Uh, and I just captured 14 of these. And keep in mind, these are written 700 years before Christ fulfilled them. And one of the things that's interesting about this is how specific they are. They'll be very detailed. I'm going to go through just eight of these, and we're going to talk about the science that shows that these were indeed fulfilled. But, you know, keep in mind how specific these are. On Wednesday, when I was speaking at the church, I wanted to show the contrast with those. Many people will go to the horoscopes to, to read, oh, what's the prediction for them for the day? And those are very general. So I looked up some of those, and I was kind of hesitant about whether to read a horoscope in church. And so right before I went in, I looked at it one more time to just remember what it said. And of course, it went out. I lost it. And so I think God answered. He didn't want me reading a horoscope in church. Uh, but those were saying things like, you may meet a new friend soon. Um, another one was, you can expect to have one of your goals come, come to fruition. I mean, you know, what goal? What specific? When? <laughs> doesn't say. So let's go look at some of these 
some of these prophecies. Go to the next slide. You know these, uh, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. This was predicted 700, 750 years B.C. Uh, it says, but you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah. Again, it's being specific that it's this town and it's a very unlikely town. Go to the next slide. So what do the observations say? What does the science say? Well, they record it. Matthew recorded and he wrote it and he published it. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, John did as well. Luke did as well. So the science, the observations by eyewitnesses records that these prophecies, this prophecy was true. Go to the next one. The Messiah will enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Again, very unique, very specific, but not what you'd expect because a king would enter on a chariot or something of that sort. But he's going to be lowly and riding on a donkey. That's what's predicted in Zechariah. Go to the next one. And you see Matthew and Luke both record this uh, as being just as predicted. Next one. Third. Well, I'll go through these fairly fast. Messiah portrayed and sold for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah said, then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages. And if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Go to the next one. And again, Matthew records this. Now, what I find interesting about this, when he says, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. This, and Matthew later says, this is the chief priests and elders. You would think that someone behind the scene, maybe not even not an elder, but one of the lower levels would go, um, <clears throat> excuse me, chief priest, uh, you know, maybe we shouldn't pay him 30 pieces of silver. You know, there's that guy back there in Zechariah. They fulfilled the prophecy and they don't even know the scriptures well enough to know the mistake that they're making by doing this. So go to the next one. This is another one that's very unusual. It says the money for which the Messiah is sold is to be thrown to the potter in God's house. That's what Zechariah said. Throw it to the potter, that princely price that they set for me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Well, that's very unusual. Go to the next slide. And we'll see Matthew says, then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver and pieces and said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Again, recorded and published. Real science. Go to the next one. The Messiah would have his hands, feet, and side pierced. That's a thousand years it's first spoke of, and then later by Zechariah, 500 years before it takes place. And we see that. Go to the next slide. We see that John records it. Yep, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Diane talked about that. And we see John later talking about how when he met with Thomas, he said, look, reach your fingers here and look at my hands and reach your hands here and put it into my side. 
even Jesus gets into the act of recording and testifying that John wrote it down, that Jesus is saying it. So next one. Next slide. On the cross, they would divide up my garments. That's what said thousand years before Jesus. Go to the next slide. And John records this. Then the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts. And then when it gets down to the, the tunic, they said, let us not tear it, but let's cast lots for it. Again, it clearly is recorded that it's fulfilled. Next one. And the Messiah would be given vinegar to quench his thirst. That was a thousand years before in Psalms. It says, they also gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Go to the next one. And so Matthew and John record this. That's just what they did. And again, you would think that one of the priests would be going, no, no, speak up and say, don't give him vinegar. Don't give him gall. Give him some water. Because surely they knew that was prophesize, but they don't. Go to the next slide. This is the last one. He's being to be executed without having a bone broken. Again, first 1,400 years beforehand, and then again, 1,000 years beforehand, he guards all his bones. Not a one of them is to be broken. Last one before we get to the significance of this. John records that they did not break his legs. So, Go to the next slide. So the question is, you know, probabilities can be calculated. What's the probability that John, that Jesus would fulfill these prophecies? Can you come back to me for just a second? If you, if you do, I think you can go back to me, hopefully. Uh, is it not working? No, no, it's not working. No, your camera's gone. All right, well, then go back to the slides. Um, I was just going to show you that I had a gold dollar. And um, go to the next slide. The, the question is, if I had a gold dollar and a, and a silver dollar, and I put them in a bag and reached in and grabbed one, you would know it's 50-50 chance. Well, go to the next slide. Well, the probability is been calculated as to what's the probability that Jesus would fulfill just eight prophecies. And this mathematician, Peter Stoner, in 1963, calculated the probability for Jesus fulfilling just eight. And that probability is one in 10 to the 17th. That's a hundred quadrillion. That is one in 10 times 10, 17 times. That's, that's a huge number. Well, just to put it in perspective as to how big that is, go to the next slide. You could take a silver dollar, you've got the dimensions there, and Texas is a big state. In America, we say everything's big in Texas. It's a big state. It's the size of France. It's um, really, all, it's a little bit bigger than New South Wales and a little bit smaller than... Uh, South Australia. Uh, it's a big state. Well, you not only could cover the state of Texas with those coins, you could cover the state of Texas two feet deep, over two feet deep, in fact. 
that's over 60 centimeters deep in coins. And you'd have to have a blind person pick out one coin out of that pile to fulfill eight prophecies that I just mentioned. Go to the next slide. The probability that he fulfilled 48 prophecies is one in 10 to the 157. I've got a number down here with just 50 zeros in it. It would have had one in 10 to the 157, 157 zeros. So I like this last quote. Go to the next slide and you'll see. Actually, Jesus fulfilled 324 prophecies. 324 prophecies. What's the probability of him doing that? This person, Jonathan Burnus, a Jewish believer, said Jesus fulfilled not just the 48 specifically Masonic, Messianic prophecies. In fact, he fulfilled more than 324 individual prophecies that related to the Messiah. The probability of one man fulfilling 324 prophecies must be a number beyond comprehension. In fact, I tried to look up what that number would be called, and, and I didn't find it. So it's clear Jesus is the Christ. He did what we've been talking about. He did come and die for our sins, and he is the Savior. And it's recorded that he not only died for our sins, but the empty tomb is the greatest testimony of all, that he was resurrected. He is alive. He's not dead. So that's all I am. Fantastic, Len. Mm. Looks yeah, like your really screen's still off, Len. Yeah, I've tried yeah. getting out and getting back in the camera. The, um, yeah, it says that your signal is very, very low, so I wouldn't play around with it too much unless we lose you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we're probably better off just carrying on forward like this. It's very cloudy. Good stuff. Bad weather here. So, mm. in fact, why don't you have Sam's little unit now? Uh, because I think that, that sounds like a good well. idea. I'm looking forward and to this because I haven't actually seen this yet. No, <laughs> you're in for a treat. Um, okay, so uh, this is a little project I've been working on for the past sort of few days. Um, I'm, 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 I'm. It was something that I felt needed to be done, and I'm really sort of happy that i get to share this with everyone um i will warn people this does contain some graphic imagery and some mature themes um because it pertains to the crucifixion but i think it's important for us all to realize exactly what christ went through for us uh and to actually you know get uh, some perspective and to try and wrap our heads around what that actually looked like what sort of suffering he had um in 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 the end basically um so i will uh, pull up my film now and uh i do hope that you all enjoy uh there we go let me put that full screen there we go
36 months on 2001 Civics. I'm Dr. Mark Groban, chairman of the Mamsie Health Plans, MDI. Why drive all over town to compare cars? Make one stop at car. This came to us with a problem. How do you get that designer look without? Every day at McDonald's, we're serving up a variety of great tastes. I had one. Yeah. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Apparently, a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center in New York. La espera de, de mayores informaciones, saber qué fue lo que ocurrió, cómo fue que este. On the morning of the 11th of September 2001, the world would learn of a developing situation in New York City. 19 terrorists hijacked four commercial airplanes scheduled to travel from the east coast of the USA to California on the west. American Airlines Flight 11 was the first plane to hit the North Tower of the World Trade Center at 8.46 a.m. local time. It slammed into the tower between the 93rd and 99th floor. The second plane, United Airlines Flight Number 175, hit the South Tower 17 minutes later at 9.03 a.m., impacting between floors 77 to 85. At 9.37 a.m., American Airlines Flight 77 struck the west wall of the Pentagon. All of the hijackers, crew and passengers were killed and a further 2,731 people would be killed from the effects of these suicide bombers. In total, 2,996 lives were lost. The hijackers of United Airlines 93 screamed Allah Akbar or God is great when they were trying to crash the plane. Many people in the World Trade Center, on the ground or in the air, screamed, Oh my God, God save me, or Jesus Christ. Both the jihadists and the civilians were on about God, but were they talking about the same God? Or were they talking about a different God? The answer is no, they are not the same God. Muslims would argue that this is not true. We worship the same God of Abraham, but not so. The God of the Bible is unique and distinct from the gods of other religions, including Islam. In fact, Jesus Christ himself claimed to be the only way to God, saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14:6. So, who is Jesus? According to the Bible, Jesus is God in human form, who came to earth over 2,000 years ago. He lived a perfect sinless life, 
and then willingly laid down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of all humanity. He took on the punishment that we deserved so that we could be reconciled with God and have eternal life. Jesus endured an unimaginable amount of pain and suffering during his crucifixion. Before he was even placed on the cross, he was beaten, whipped and flogged by Roman soldiers. The scourging alone would have been enough to kill many people as it involved a whip with metal balls or bone fragments tied into the strands which would tear the flesh and cause deep wounds. After this brutal scourging, Jesus was then forced to carry his own cross to the place where he would be crucified. The weight of the cross, coupled with his weakened state, would have been an immense physical strain. Then came the crucifixion itself. The nails that were driven through Jesus' hands and feet would have caused excruciating pain as they pierced through nerves and flesh. Hanging on the cross for hours would have caused immense strain on his muscles and organs, leading to dehydration and eventual asphyxiation. But the physical pain was not the only suffering that Jesus endured. He also experienced intense emotional and spiritual pain as he bore the weight of the sins of all humanity. He cried out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46. Feeling the weight of separation from his father as he took on the punishment that we deserved. All of this pain and suffering that Jesus endured was an act of love, a sacrifice made so willingly that we could be reconciled with God. As the Apostle Peter wrote, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter 2.24 But that's not the end of the story. Three days after his death, Jesus rose from the dead, proving his power over death and offering us the hope of eternal life with him. This is the foundation of the Christian faith and the reason why Jesus is such a significant figure in history. So why do people still call on the name of Jesus today, even in the midst of tragedy and pain? Because Jesus offers hope and peace in a world that can often feel chaotic and overwhelming. He is the ultimate source of love, comfort and salvation. And anyone who puts their faith in him can experience his life-transforming power. In short, Jesus is God in the flesh, who came to save us from our sins and offer us eternal life as a free gift.
Well, there we go. Fabulous. So, so that is the uh, that is the um, the gospel presentation that I've been working on, um, and I I really do hope that this can get in front of uh, as many people who need to hear it as possible. Um, this is so crucial uh, for everyone to hear. Um, you know, you, you have no chance at salvation just by good works. You need Jesus. That is what Easter is all about. That is what Good Friday is all about. We call it Good Friday because what Jesus did on the cross was for our good. Thanks, Sam. Really, really great there. Perhaps if I just uh, take a minute or two to summarize the whole lot, starting from where we began, the work was finished from the foundation of the world, right through to all the prophecies, even though none of us would have prophesied that Glenn would disappear before the end of the program into darkness <laughs> and oblivion. Uh, hopefully I'm still here. <laughs> That's good. And uh, we, we, we've seen Sam's presentation of the importance of this to you and I personally. Let's, let's just remind you of what the foundation of the world was, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God. Uh, in the beginning, God created. And the world was covered with darkness. Remember God's first recorded words, let there be light. And the light shone in the darkness. And the darkness, hang on, where am I getting mixed up here? Because I've got the New Testament, John's Gospel, that says basically the same thing. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And the light shone in the darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. There's no doubt about it that the start of the New Testament gospel is based exclusively on the start of the Old Testament. Yes. The Old Testament, a legal agreement between God and man. That's what a testament is. And you find it updated to a New Testament, a new will, a new inheritance to those who are his families. And it's all to do with the fact that the, that the, the good news was actually finished before the foundation of the world. As, as the book, writer of Hebrews says, the work was finished. It was all decided. Jesus had already committed himself to put his face towards Jerusalem, to hang on a cross. So if you're wondering how come God could organize history so those prophecies would come true, the fact is it was all prepared right in the beginning. Blows your mind, blows your brains. Uh, the, the calculation that Glenn gave us of trying to figure out how, how what would the chance be of eight of these prophecies being fulfilled, let alone 400 of them being fulfilled, they are impossible without a great organizer. I say that because yes. you see probabilities is how we figure out when the when the roulette wheel is being a cheated wheel because mm -hmm. it gets more more results than it should, uh, then it's not working by chance. Somebody's smart and behind it. In this case, it is the God who is the creator, who is actually Jesus Christ, who is actually the God who came in the New Testament gospel, the God who hung on a cross. You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But note one thing. The Jews were given a day of rest on the seventh day. That became a shadow of the New Testament day of rest and a New Testament promised land. The Jews got a physical promise and they got physical life and they got physical freedom. The New Testament, the new legal agreement, the new covenant offers you eternal life. It offers you an a, new, a new heavens and a new earth and a freedom totally from death. And that's what the real rest is about. Question, 
When did this first appear in scripture? On the first day of the week that God created, the light shone in the darkness and the darkness could no more comprehend it in verse 1 to 5 of Genesis chapter 1 than the spiritually dead people, the dark people, could comprehend it in John chapter 1. Now, can I encourage you? We can go on for ages, read that book, Walking with Jesus Through Genesis, and see how cleverly God has worked into history, has worked through history, has, has worked history for your sake, that he would die and rise from the dead, not on the seventh day, on the seventh day he rested, because alive or dead, Jesus kept his own rules. He is the word who gave Moses that law, on the seventh day you will rest. But he's also the God who gave Moses the law that said, yeah, look up Deuteronomy chapter 5, the second version of Ten Commandments. It says you'll remember the Sabbath because I have redeemed you. Now, physical redemption, well, if you're a Jew, feel free to keep that day and remember that your ancestors were physically redeemed from physical bondage in a physical new promised land. But far more important is spiritual redemption from spiritual bondage in a new heavens and a new earth, and it's only accessible through Jesus Christ who rose from the dead on the first day of the week. That's probably a good place for me to stop. Uh, you see, many of you know my wife is not well. I'm going to have to go down and care for her shortly. So I'll hand back to you, Joe, and uh, you can take where you like. I'll have to go in maybe three minutes. No worries. Well, we're coming up to the two-hour mark anyway, so I think we've uh, we've probably covered most stuff, but be sure to join us again next week because we've got Easter part two and uh, I'm sure that Sam's um, video will be up on YouTube fairly shortly. Yes, it's premiering in around about half an hour. Well, there we go. We probably want to sign off fairly soon anyway, so we can all go and watch that again. Um, so, yeah, thanks all very much for, for, for joining us. Let's have one uh, very quick question before we close down and have to say goodbye. We have no more. We have no more. We're all done. Everything. Any thank yous? Have we done all? Uh, no, we've done all. We've done it all. Well, there we go. <laughs> Time to close. We've done well. We've done well. Yeah. Uh, be sure to join us. Uh, be sure to jo join us next week because we ha do have the uh, the Easter part two. Let's see. I think there's a graphic about that somewhere. There we are. There, there we go. Um, we've got Easter part two. A reminder as well as to our Easter questions and answers which you can see on the screen there. If you go to the creationresearchcenter.com and just click on article article excuse me um you'll find it on the list of articles that are there as well so do go and check that out you'll find that very very useful well i've just had a notification on my phone to say that creation research is premiering the gospel in 30 minutes so it's about time that we signed off and say do join us next week goodbye and god bless and it's great to have you all here once again so any last words from the team uh if, yeah from me um please uh like and share the gospel we want to get that video out everywhere we possibly can so spread send, it as far and wide as possible spread it post it on your facebook post it on your twitter post it on your instagram whatever whatever it takes get it out there we want people to hear the gospel sounds great you all did awesome i love you see you next week we'll catch see you later you everyone great to see you all bye everyone goodbye and god bless